This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I asked design program manager Marcy Quintana how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Having a diverse workforce really makes Facebook a better product overall. Different people have different cultural values and therefore they use things in different ways. So being able to have that perspective is critical, really, to our success as a company. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fog Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. Segment is looking for a brand designer in San Francisco. And for freelancers, Cactus Group as well as Social Experiments DC are looking for website designers. Check the job board for more info. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you one last time about our annual audience survey. It actually ends today on April the 30th. Go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to fill it out. It's a pretty short survey, I think. It takes about five to ten minutes to fill out. And the reason that we ask for this audience survey every year is because we want to learn more about you. Our audience has grown so much since last year. So many new people are starting to listen to the show. And we want to hear from you to learn more about the things that you want out of Revision Path, to know less of the things you don't want out of Revision Path. Uh, We just want to hear from you so we can make sure that we're bringing you exactly what it is that you're looking for from this podcast. So again, you can go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to fill that out. Takes about five to 10 minutes. Remember, closes tonight at midnight Eastern time, April the 30th. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch or remix any of the available projects there and make them your own. And if you get stuck, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up today for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You only want to hear from the people and the companies that you like. And MailChimp really helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. 
It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're ending out the month by talking with Jonathan Jackson, partner and creative director at We Should Do It All in Brooklyn, New York. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, Maurice. I'm Jonathan Jackson. I um, am partner and creative director at We Should Do It All, a design studio in Brooklyn, New York. I'm also a, a new father. I'm proud of. Congratulations. Thank you. We Should Do It All. Tell me about the inspiration behind naming the studio. <laughs> yeah. So in college, a friend of mine was reading this book by Robert Heinlein called Time Enough for Love. He's a sci-fi writer. He passed it on to me and we found this quote. Uh, we were collaborating on a project together and we needed something that tied everything with the project, you know, sort of a great summary of the project. And, and this quote just stood out to us. I'm going to read it to you really quickly, if you don't mind. Okay. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly, specialization is for insects. For us, it just made sense. When, when I read it, I kind of just said, oh man, we should do it. We should be doing it all, you know, and you know, with a couple more edits, uh, <laughs> a, week la- a week later, I had the name of the studio. And, you know, uh, it was always a goal of mine to have have my own studio. So I just saved it, uh, worked for a couple of studios in New York. And then when it was time, opened up shop. And that's how it came about. Specialization is for insects. I love that. That's yeah. dope. <laughs> Tell me more about your time in college. You went to uh, Kent State. Is that right? Yeah, Kent State in Ohio. Got an architecture degree there. So it was uh, actually, it was a five-year program, but I did six because I uh, was not that great at math. <laughs> so I took, I had to take a semester off and, and do some other things and then come back into the architecture program, which actually was a, a huge benefit because I got to study some other things as well. Yeah, my time at Kent was great. The architecture school is probably more known for giving you a, a great foundation into the field of architecture. Like, you know how to put things together. You know what it takes to construct. From a creativity standpoint, it's probably not the top-notch school, but it's a group of us, a wide group of us, were able to learn just as much in school as out of it and, and, and lean on each other. So there's a select few students that were really talented and, and um, sort of leaned on each other for information and, and, and critique. So Kent State, the College of Architecture and Environmental Design, is, is where I got my degree, and I still keep in contact with some professors there. Every now and then I'm going back. We just got a new architecture building, so I need to go see that, actually. But I was just in Cleveland. We gave a talk, and a couple of uh, classmates and professors came, so it was, it was really great. So it's, it's kind of a second home, in a way. Nice. Are you from Cleveland? You're from that area? No, I'm actually from New York. My dad did, did teach journalism at Kent State back in the 70s, and he recommended the architecture program. He just actually recommended the school in general, and I definitely wanted a different pace of Rather to go to school on the East Coast or, or, or New York specifically, I kind of wanted a different environment. So, yeah, uh, yeah I found Ohio and it, it worked out pretty well. What appealed to you about architecture specifically? Man, well, so I've always been a pretty good drawer. My mom recognized that pretty early. And I was, funny enough, I was actually in love with Nike as a nine-year-old and drawing shoes, designing shoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was like, yeah, we should send these to Nike sometime and I'll get hyped up about that. 
I don't know if she recognized right away that, you know, being a shoe designer is something that you can make a living off of. And this is like the 90s. So I don't know if she was aware of that, but she introduced me to Frank Lloyd Wright and a couple of other architects. And when I saw the drawings and the buildings that they were designing, my thinking about shoes was going right to thinking about space. And it was really transformative in a way. And I knew at the age of maybe 11 that I wanted to be an architect. So that was a pursuit from an early on, early stage in my life. And I went to school, got an internship in my third year. We were in Italy. You do a semester abroad and we were in, in Florence. I did an internship with a studio, an architecture studio called Archaea. Their practice was really different in the sense that the foundation of them were architects, but they also produced two different magazines, architectural magazines in-house. Mm-hmm. So they had, they had writers and graphic designers all in-house, and I was pretty amazed by that. It sort of took on this sort of Bauhausian type of studio, and I was really attracted to that and, and sort of molded my thinking about how the studio, we should do it all, would, would operate. So doing that internship and mom introducing me into such architectural giants like Frank Lloyd Wright, Corbusier, and, and Mies was, uh, I think, sort of sculpted my thinking around how I would approach design. I don't know if enough people really realize like how much of I feel like modern I feel like modern big box architecture is modeled after after Mies van der Rohe. Mm. Like it's so interesting especially here um in Atlanta. We were talking before we started recording about how Atlanta's gentrifying and things and starting to look like other cities and it's so interesting cuz I travel a fair bit and it's always kind of jarring to go from like Chicago to New York to San Francisco or back to Atlanta. And you see these same buildings and storefronts that all look just kind of interchangeable. Yeah, and, and Mies was heavily in love with the machine and, and you know the aesthetic of the machine manifested into architecture. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot. He had such influence for sure, definitely. It sounds like you had the idea to do the studio even back then in college. So this wasn't like a newer kind of pursuit that you had. Yeah, I, I, I kind of knew. I'm hard-headed. I know, I know <laughs> I'm probably not the easiest to work with or follow instructions the best. So I kind of knew that I needed to have <laughs> my own operation. I didn't know it was going to come so young. But after working for two architecture studios in New York, kind of just got fed up and started taking on projects outside of work. Yeah. And then those projects kind of took over work. <laughs> I got fired. And that firing was probably the best thing. So the firing was like the impetus to fully pursue it and not just do it on the side. Yeah. yeah. Amen there. I feel you. I, <laughs> I, cause I was wondering like how you transitioned from architecture to design. And even when I talk to other people, once they've worked out in the working world for a bit, something about that ends up kind of pushing them more towards doing their own thing. It was, it was the same way for me. I started a job maybe about two or three years out of college, uh, got fired from that. And then, <laughs> Yeah. Worked at two other places and just realized, well, I quit. Well, I left one and then quit the other one and just realized it wasn't for me at the time. So, yeah. But yeah. how did you how did you make that shift, though? Yeah, I mean, and not to say that architecture wasn't for me, but I, I will say my critique of it, and it's not going to change. It's just the way it is, is that for me and for people who like to produce things, architecture is really slow. And mm-hmm. the appeal, the appeal of design is that you can design something in a day or two and you know maybe you sh- you take it to the printer and a week later it's in your hands it's like that level that speed of production was really attractive to me mm-hmm. but the way i was introduced to into graphics was also in college my girlfriend's brother at the time was like 
he was looking at the sketchbook and he was seeing I was doing some graphic things, but they were always within the architectural realm. It wasn't it wasn't a full on graphic design, but he saw elements of graphic design in there. And he said, hey, do you know David Carson? And I was like, no, who's that? And he showed me a couple of books and I was mesmerized by David Carson at the time. And for those who don't know, he's a West Coast designer and uh, a rule breaker. And I think as a whole, the graphic design world kind of scoffs at him uh, just because he doesn't really worry about grids or <laughs> he distorts type but his stuff is was a huge influence on on me wanting to learn more and trying to understand what he was doing and then uh with further education i had to go back into graphic design history and understand who paul Rand was just other giants and and understanding i got sort of a my own education of graphic design through david carson which is probably not the best route to take <laughs> But I was aware enough to understand that that's not the only the only way of doing graphic design. So, you know, going back in, into the history and understanding who's doing what I think was important and then helping me establish a voice with, with the work as well. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, later on in college, I was introduced to, to graphic design in that way and started just doing, assigning myself projects that I look back at now and were horrible, but it was a stepping stone. So it was great. That's neat that you had kind of the, the structure of architecture, but then also the frenetic work of, of David Carson. And for people that are listening, go and try to find old issues of Ray Gun magazine so you can see what Jonathan's talking about, like uh, David Carson's typography work. It was really, really, I think, influential in the 90s. I see, I think even Rolling Stone kind of started using some of that same kind of stuff at one point in time. Yeah, he was heavily influential. I mean, his surf magazines, like you mentioned, Ray Gun. Yeah, I mean, he was a giant. So let's talk about, you know, the studio now. What kind of uh, work are you doing with We Should Do It All? It's pretty vast, and I'm happy to say we just launched our new website. But the, the type of work that we're working on right now is, is really cool. So for University of Pennsylvania, the Department of Architecture, we sort of become the house graphic design team that works on most of their stuff. So we produce 360-page year-in-review book, which highlights the students' work all the school events and then showcases some of the professors work and, and happenings as well. We also do the lecture series poster every semester and then any events that are happening, like if there's a symposium and such and needs, it needs branding or a poster, we're doing that right now. We're working with the Smithsonian institution on a traveling exhibition exhibition called men of change. And it's basically a selection of 25 African-American men who have changed American history through the years Mm-hmm. And it's great because it's a wide-ranging exhibit where, you know, Chance the Rapper will be adjoined with Frederick Douglass or uh, LeBron next to James Baldwin. It's a great range, and we're super excited. We're handling the branding and exhibition design for that. So uh, it'll go to 10 different cities in 2000, starting in 2019. What else are we working on? We just did some work for Google, sort of a retail exploration. Google asked, the brief was simply... Let's create a retail space that has little to do with uh, typical retail environments. So we had a lot of fun with that. We're also working with ESPN, a particular group called the International Marketing Solutions. And they basically work with major companies like Home Depot and FedEx and establish relationships with these companies and helping develop ESPN's reach throughout the, the regions of the, of the globe. So we work on a website for them, work on what we call one sheets, which are different print materials to showcase their capabilities. 
We're working on a rebranding a fashion brand that's focusing on streetwear for women in Brooklyn, New York, and they're called Scapes. They do really cool work rebranding them. We're excited. We're really excited to show show the the new branding very soon. We're also working with Nike and their Soho store. They're revamping the new Soho store that opened late 2016 in the sense where they they have different categories. So women's training and, and running, men's training and running, basketball, and then streetwear. So they're realigning the floors and we're doing some environmental graphics and a couple of different sculptures actually for the, for the space. So yeah, those are some of the projects that we're working on now. We're actually working on a really cool project for the Center for Architecture called Hip Hop Architecture. And it's focusing on the birth of hip hop through the lens of architecture, which was is really interesting conversation. And, you know, how Corbusier had something to do with that and, and, and urban planning and, and how his scheme was uh, <laughs> taken and misconstrued and is now designed to what we know to be the projects. So, yeah, uh, interesting exhibit. And we're doing yeah just the branding and graphics for that, that show that's coming in October to the Center for Architecture in New York. Nice. These are some some really big, wide ranging projects. Yeah, there's one project I'm really hoping, keeping my fingers crossed. We're we just got shortlisted to do the new Cleveland Library MLK branch, Martin Luther King Jr. branch in in Cleveland, and it's down to three teams, and we're hoping uh, it goes well. So, yeah, it's, the the projects are really wide ranging, and we're super excited to showcase some of this stuff. Uh, right now, we're, we're We've been pretty quiet, so we're, we we want to get the work out there. Yeah. Now I know that we have a lot of you know freelancers and entrepreneurs and even some some studio owners that are listening. So I'm curious just to kind of know you know kind of a little bit of behind the scenes information that you can tell at least with you know about we should do it all. How do you find clients to do this type of work? I feel like some studios tend to get into a a bit of a trap with the level of clients that they're able to bring in. And so then that ends up influencing the work that they're able to put out. Yeah. And the, the trapping is real, right? I mean, people, uh, <laughs> people want to put you in a category and, and keep you there if they can. So for us, it's, we've been extremely lucky, to be honest with you, man. The way that we've gotten clients, for the most part, has been through word of mouth. And I think the biggest thing that happened to us was in 2008, Nike called, and they called out of the blue. Uh, apparently, the creative director of Nike North America saw our website on some design blog. And that sort of was a game changer for us. Before that, it was sort of like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Working on smaller projects and, and that stuff was great. It was definitely a, a hustle and it's just a different type of hustle now. But yeah, I think that triggered a lot for us because once companies saw that Nike could trust us over and over and over again, it opened the door for us to, to start to work with other brands and bigger companies. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we don't want to lose is that when people see the Smithsonian Institution, we worked on the, the, the museum in D.C., when they see a couple other Nike projects and Samsung and things like that, we don't want smaller companies to think that, yeah, they're going to be over budget for us. So huh. trying to maintain, like we still love to work with smaller companies. We, we make efforts to especially work on projects that are enriching the community. So we work with AIGA a lot. We work with the Center for Urban Pedagogy called They Go By Cup for short. And those type of projects are important to us because, you know, we, like I said, we've been lucky to get these bigger clients, but taking on those community enriching projects are important to us as well. But as far as like being able to 
find new clients. I feel like the networking is something that doesn't necessarily come easy to me nor my partner, Sarah, but we've surrounded our friend, ourselves with good friends and again, word of mouth. And a lot of those friends are in the design industry or art industry and have recommended us to, to people they know. And so, yeah, word of mouth has been our biggest tool. We've done some reaching out networking directly through mailers and sending people PDFs and stuff, but that hasn't gotten the same reaction somehow as word of mouth. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things like we're probably not the best people to talk to about how to get new clients just because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've been lucky in the sense that it's been sort of a pebble that started rolling down a mountain and then it's picked up or, uh, to grow and grow and grow that snowball effect. But that being said, you know, we still are in the search for more and more. Like there's different industries that we want to try to tackle. We haven't done much within the fashion world. Mm-hmm. We haven't done anything in the food world. And those are two worlds that we would love to, to get our hands in. Not that they're going to be paying the greatest because we understand that, but it's just, yeah, there's, there's diff- different subjects, subjects that we would like to cover and, and explore. And I think, you know, those two and a couple more are, are uh, where we're looking to next and we're still trying to figure out it's been probably two, three years how to get our foot in the door with those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I recently talked with Eddie Opara. Oh, okay. He's a partner over at at Pentagram. Yeah. He's a friend. That's cool. Oh yeah. Cool. And I was asking him kind of a similar thing with how is it that Pentagram kind of, uh, you know, brings on clients and, and how they find the types of clients, because I feel like, Certainly for studios that are either starting out or have been in the game for, you know, let's say at least five years or so, you kind of hit a plateau. And I'll, I'll even share my own story here. Before I work now at a company, but before that, I ran my own studio for nine years. And when it got to the five-year mark, it did feel like I sort of hit a wall. Like, okay, I'm getting clients in and the money is decent, but like, I don't know how to break through to that that next level to do pentagram level work or or not even necessarily pentagram level work, but to do the type of work with a client where you can really kind of showcase what you can do and cut loose. And it feels like those sorts of opportunities can be hard to find. You said, you know, interestingly enough, even though you do these big name projects like a Samsung or Nike or Google, that you also still want to do the smaller projects. How do you balance, I guess, that or can you balance that perception from clients that because you've got these larger, you know, types of projects and clients that you've done, that that's all that you can do, or that's all that you're willing to do? Yeah, I think for us, and we've been, I have to say, we've been pretty bad about keeping our website up to date. We're much better on Instagram. But for us, it's thinking about the type of content we're putting out there. So if we post something that we've done for Nike, we we definitely want to follow that up with something that has nothing to do with a bigger, bigger brand. I think for us is when it comes to branding, it's not necessarily who you think you are, it's who they think you are. So if we can change their perception, and as I mentioned, people want to put you in the box. So we've gotten since we work with ESPN and Nike, we've gotten all oh, they're the they're the guys guys to go to for for sport graphics, which is something I definitely don't want to be fully associated with. Like if we're trying to keep the work diverse, it's sort of dismissive to put us in that category. So. We're we're trying to be conscious of the type of output that we're showing. So if, if if Nike's one thing that we post, then let's put something in you know the in academia with pen design next, or you know let's put out something that we're doing with um, the smaller fashion company that, like I mentioned, Scapes. So I think it's just being aware and trying to change perception. I think 
you never really get to understand unless you're asking everyone that you meet, what do you think of the work? Where would you place us? And we tend not to do that. So we're just constantly trying to make show ourselves as being diverse as possible. And hopefully, like even for the, when we were going out for this national RFP for the Smithsonian Men of Change exhibit, the head curator and director was saying, yeah, we don't have a huge budget to work with. I understand that you, you guys work with Nike. And I, I, my re- rebuttal back to her was, yeah, but we've also, you know, in the, in the portfolio I sent her was showing, yeah, we've also done these community-based projects for, for AIGA and CUP and mm-hmm. East New York and Bushwick. So I think it's constantly trying to <laughs> drill home like we do other things and, and, and hence the name again, you know? So, yeah, yeah. It's a constant battle, though. I think it's it's going to be that way forever. No, I, I that's real. I believe that. How do you handle yeah. clients that try to lowball you? Ooh, <laughs> lowball is is interesting, right? Because Nike could do that, Google could do that, and then a much smaller a much smaller company could do that. But it's yeah. all. And my my partner again might disagree with me on this because she definitely has a better business head than I do. But to me, everything is about the portfolio. What does it mean to, to be able to work on a Google project and be able to show that, show that off versus, and not necessarily get that, that much money for it versus a smaller company trying to lowball us? Maybe that's something that we would just pass on because it may not have the clout of a bigger company. Yeah. But even from a budgetary standpoint, we try not to be too rigid with how much we're charging if the output of the project is more eyes get to see it, which possibly leads to more work. So we have, there's a balancing act, and we, and we have this sort of uh, exam that we put ourselves through. It's like 20 questions about the project mm-hmm. before we start, before we even decide to take it on. It helps us decide if we're going to take it on or not. Yeah, so I think uh, just going through that exercise and understanding what are the advantages and disadvantages, and if money is not right, what are the other things that this project could bring to the table for us? So, yeah put ourselves through that, that question and answer. Speaking of the new website, I saw something interesting on your recognition page, you know, that has your, your press mentions and such. You say we should do it all has proactively refrained from submitting to award competitions since 2012. What prompted that decision? It came out of the fact that, well, we had a good string of wins where we were winning awards when we were applying. And then we had a good string of losses and uh, what we noticed was the hurt from the losses outweighed the joy from the wins. Uh-huh. So in that sense, we kind of just stopped. And we understand that awards may be something that clients are attracted to. But in the end, we feel like the work, if the work is good, that should be what resonates the most. And frankly, like paying for awards and such was just off-putting as well. Oh, let's talk you about know? that, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you have to pay to to submit and then you know you're not going to get that payment back if you lose in a time where you know in 2006 2007 2008 we're still you know scrambling so yeah that also is a factor yeah and i mean aside from just the return on investment on if you win the award i wonder if clients are attracted to the awards or does that sort of push them away if they see oh this is an award winning studio so they might try to be, you know, they might overcharge me or the work might be expensive or do clients see those awards and think, wow, they do really great work. I want them to do that sort of work for me. Mm, That's a good point. I didn't think of it that way. I think for us, 
we're probably probably have turned the corner where most of the clients are, are thinking it's a more in the positive realm than, mm-hmm. than but yeah, I think there's definitely a, a time and a place where, where clients could see that and be unattracted to that. Yeah, it's a good point. What advice would you give to anyone out there listening who wants to kind of do the work that you're doing that wants to be at your level with the amount of, uh, I wouldn't even say the amount, but let's say the, the breadth of work that comes out of your studio. If you're in college and you're studying graphics or if you're studying architecture, if you're studying industrial design, I just feel like it's nice to not only think about the chair that you're designing if you're an industrial designer, but what type of room does that chair sit in? Is there type of some type of complementary aspects that, that the room could deliver to the chair and the chair could deliver to the room? So you're not just thinking about the object itself, but the space that it sits in. If you're a graphic designer, I, I think think about your graphics in the three-dimensional realm. Like how does it sit on the wall? You know, just, just thinking about other aspects in the field that you're in, because for us, I think design is so connected. If you could just find the time to start to discover and get influence and inspiration from other fields, which I do think happens already, but it's not fully pursued into another design field as a, as a career, keeping that diversity within your head. I think it's a good thing to, to, yeah, just discover other realms of, of who's doing what and grabbing inspiration from completely different different field. Um, we often grab inspiration from art and sculpture. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly can't tell you like good advice necessarily about how we got to where we are. It's just, um, <laughs> and it took a while to get here. It didn't happen overnight for sure. But even the type of people that we hire, they're thinking in different modes of not just the thing that they're practicing, you know? So they know artists, they know sculptors, they know architects they know graphic designers they know industrial designers so i don't know though you know as we continue on the internet has made the world a much smaller place i think information is out there and i just say if the diversity of work is what you want to do you need to be thinking not just in one way you need to be thinking in multiple ways at the same time yeah who are some of your influences wow definitely two by four you know eddie opara used to work for them before Mm -hmm. he opened up his own shop 2x4 was at first just a graphic design studio. Now they've expanded themselves to having an architecture aspect of the studio. They are a huge influence for us. The architect David Ajaye, I used to want to work for him back when I was in school, and it was cool to work on the museum. I didn't get to work for him, but I worked with him, which which was nice. (laughs) I think that some of the giants that we mentioned before, Corbusier, Meese, trying to think david carson of course mm-hmm. yeah the the studio i worked for in italy i mentioned archaea like just seeing that open my eyes i like max lamb and childish gambino <laughs> okay uh, donald glover yeah just the way that he's been able to just circulate all these different worlds and be so talented at each is a is a driving force what's the design scene like for you in in new york city i would imagine with the work that you're doing at this scale that the studio probably has a pretty good reputation in the city, right? I think we're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told you we're not so good at understanding how we're, we're seen in the world. So it's, it's tough. We're, you know, a small shop in, in Brooklyn Bushwick. So, but the design scene in New York is pretty good. I think Sarah and I are a bit frustrated with a lot of institutions like an AIGA or type directors club 
just in the sense that, and I'm not talking about us, but there's so many good young studios in New York, but we constantly see the old heads getting praised and doing the same lectures and same talks yeah. over and over again. Are you familiar with Bobby C. Martin? I am. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he's a friend as well. And it's just, uh, you know, we've expressed that concern as well as just there's so many good, young, talented studios. I'm ready for that change of like, okay, we respect the old heads. They've done amazing job, but let's get some new blood in circulation and and getting their names out there. I agree with that. Yeah. That's one of the frustrations I've had with New York and some of the graphic design institutions um, to juxtapose that. The AIA does a great job of getting the young architecture studios praise and uh, talks and getting their work out there. So I think the graphic design world needs to catch up in that sense. Didn't you work with AIGA for a short period of time, like doing some volunteer work? I was actually on the board the board uh, for AIGA in New York for two years. And that was fun, helping put, put together different um, events. actually got to spearhead the 30th anniversary of AIGA in New York where we asked different studios from New York City to do posters and we had an anniversary party and yeah, it went well. It was fun learning experience and understanding how to program events and all that takes and, you know, building up an audience yeah. for types of events. It's, it's a pain in the butt and it's a headache, but it's uh, <laughs> definitely things that you can use and understand and how people operate. If you, if you are looking to put some events together, it's a nice that was a nice way of understanding how things work. Nice. Yeah, yeah I, I worked with the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force for uh, oh, three years, actually. Yeah, the National Force. And so I know what you mean about sort of getting that behind-the-scenes look at the organization and, and how those different entities kind of all work together. Um, yeah. I agree with you, though, about how there needs to be more more of a showcase on kind of what newer or up-and-coming designers are doing I remember this was what, 2015? Might have been 2015. I think they do it every year. Print magazine, before mm-hmm. they went out of print, I don't know if they still do this, but they would do a, a sort of like a Hollywood type issue, sort of like what Vanity Fair does every year, where they spotlight people in all these different categories. So someone's like the Maverick, the trendsetter, the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I didn't see very many like newer or younger designers in there. I think younger designers were sort of shuttled off to their own category, like the young guns or something like that. But I feel like that's, that's prevalent throughout the design industry. You see that at conferences, uh, you know, and of course you see it from organizations as well, where they're only kind of spotlighting the ones that have this really big, large body of work. But then what about the designers that are coming up after them? I mean, yes, it's it's good for inspiration, but let's let's showcase them as well because I know I've talked to many people who have felt discouraged by only seeing kind of the I won't say the best of the best, but they get discouraged by not seeing more diversity in the types of people that are being shown. And I don't mean necessarily racial diversity or gender diversity, but just people that are at different points in their design journey. Like what is that like? Yeah. One thing that happened to us at the ADC years and years ago. I think we had just won the Young Gun Award. This is probably 2006. And there was a keynote speaker happening. But before each big name speaker, they would bring on a younger studio to give a 10 minute talk before mm-hmm. that speaker went on. And I think more institutions should be doing things like that. Even just that 10 minutes of being on stage in front of uh, Michael Beirut, 
or yeah. uh, Eddie Opara, like that could be tremendous. Like there's a uh, huge design conferences like Design in, in Daba. We did a conference in in uh, in Belgium recently. I think there's opportunity to have the big name to sell tickets, but interject the young the young studios that are doing stuff just before they go on. Uh, I think that yeah, there's just ways to introduce younger talent because yeah. uh, in, in the end, it's about money and what's going to sell tickets. But maybe give the audience something they didn't expect before they get the the big keynote speaker. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you satisfied creatively? Yeah, that ranges. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'm. I truly like diverse work that comes in the studio. So if we're doing too much spatial stuff, I long for more graphics. If we're doing too much graphics, I long for spatial. So uh, yeah, for me it ranges. But I, I would say overall, I'm satisfied for sure. But it's not even a job for me, man. To be honest with you, I do this stuff for free. Yeah, but you know, you got to pay bills. You got to feed the family. Yeah, yeah the son's got, <laughs> my son's got to eat, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, if I and it's a, it's a I don't definitely believe that we should all get, should get paid, you know, for the, the the work that we're doing. It's just my love for what we do is so great that I would probably do this for free. Yeah. Do you, Do you have a dream project that you'd love to do? Oh man, I would love to brand a museum. I would love to design a restaurant from branding to spatial. I would love to do a fashion show from mm. how the runway looks to the music, motion graphics, all that. Yeah, I think that would be fun. I feel like New York would be a really great place to do that. Yeah, I think so. We'll, we'll treat, keep trying to knock down those fashion doors. <laughs> uh, someone, we got to get someone to take a chance on us. Yeah. Is there anything that you regret not doing, whether with your studio or just in life in general? Is there anything you regret not doing due to fear? Because it sounds like you're pretty fearless with a lot of the work that you are trying to do. I mean, just in a personal life thing, I wish I traveled a bit more when I was younger. And then from a studio point of view, there are some projects that we turned down that turned out to be really good. You know, we saw we saw the work later by, done by other studios and we got the offer first and turned it down. And that was probably a mistake. There's some that get away, either by us or circumstance or, you know, the client goes another route. But yeah, there's definitely some projects that I wish we didn't turn down and had pursued it. Any other major regrets? I try not to think in that realm, but yeah, I would say just that. Yeah. (laughs) About 10 years ago, you did an interview with Archonnect and they asked you if you had an interest in ever returning to architecture. You went deep, man. Yeah. <laughs> when they asked you that, you said in a very slow, migrative way. And I know that earlier you talked about architecture being slow. Are you still moving in that way as it relates to architecture? I have to say, I still have no desire to necessarily do a building. Maybe doing our own house down the road could be really cool. Mm-hmm. But to do a public building, or I don't really have that interest. I like thinking about space through exhibition, through retail through uh, brand ex- experience type mm-hmm. of environments. Even we've started to think about furniture. So I think, again, I, I like to get the 3D juices out that way. I still can't see us doing a, a full-on building. I don't think we have the, the capacity for it, nor necessarily the desire. But we admire it from afar, that's for sure. <laughs> what advice has stuck with you over the years? It could be personal advice. It could be business advice. Anything like that? 
<laughs> I don't know, man. I, I play a lot of basketball. Okay. And and oftentimes what we say in the huddle is you got we got to want it more than they do. Mm-hmm. I just feel like hard work solves a lot of issues. <laughs> and and it's hard work. It's hard thinking. It's uh, iteration. It's not being, you know, sometimes when you come to a new project, you, you all automatically have these thoughts about it. And oftentimes you find yourself having to close those doors or break through those walls that you've created. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my advice is just simply work harder. I'm never good at these advising questions or, <laughs> or answers, so forgive me. But uh, yeah, I think if you're an Eddie O'Para, work harder. If you're a Joe Schmo, work harder. So I think what we there's enough work out here for everyone, and what we should try to be doing is uh, elevating the profession as a whole. In order to do that is to, to produce good work. Europe has a, a major step on us. Um, it seems like everything that comes out of there is beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for a reason. It's, it's embedded in the culture here. It's not embedded in the culture. We have to really teach design to not ourselves, but not just ourselves, but our clients as well. So if we're all producing better work, it's better for the profession. So I just simply say work harder. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Maybe we have that museum product by then. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to struggle with this one. Yeah, you know how they, when they tell you to do a five-year plan for your business? Yeah. Or a 10-year plan? Yeah, we never did that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In five years? What kind of things would, would you want to be doing? Let's say that. What kind of things would you want to be doing in the next five years? I would still, and just speaking from a business point of view, design point of view, I would still want to be designing. I, I understand I have to do uh, still do managing managing the team from a design uh, our designers i still want to have a hand in design and working on select projects here and there where i want to be in five years and on a beach with a pina colada uh <laughs> yeah I know, I, mean, I know for a lot of people we you know we have on the show it's kind of hard to to think ahead i think yeah, especially I, when you're, you're all you're kind of especially with studio work you're just kind of focused on the project you know moving from project to project yeah, one thing I'll say, though, is a lot of studios out there are really good at producing their own work without a client. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we should be better at is producing our own challenges. And I don't know if that has necessarily to do with time, but I guess what I'm getting at is right now our studio is constantly molded by the type of projects and clients that we're getting. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to mold the studio on, by our own hand in the sense of not just turning down or accepting work, but producing our own challenges and getting that out there in the world. So like making your own products or services or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. It could be that. It could be something even much smaller, but yeah, just maybe creating a a niche in the time to pursue our own investigations. Yeah. Whatever that may be. You should do it. Sit around, think about it. Yeah. I know with my studio, we started, I mean, my studio started in 08, but I didn't start Revision Path until I hit the five-year mark, until I felt like I I had that level where I could still do the work and then also kind of take on side projects. And, like, we did little creative side projects throughout. Most of them were just kind of multimedia-related stuff. So I think it, it helps to break up the monotony mm-hmm. of just client work because now you've got something that you're really excited about that you you don't have any other kind of external stakeholders or anything beholden to you in terms of, you know, how you produce the work. Yeah. Unless you kind of cut loose a little bit. Yeah, that freedom would be nice. Yeah. 
So just to you know wrap things up here, Jonathan, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So you can find more information about the studio on our website, WSDIA.com. We have Instagram, it's we should do it all, all spelled out one word. Twitter, same thing, all one word, we should do it all. We're on Facebook. Yeah, that's that's all I got. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, man, Jonathan Jackson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I think it was really good to hear, you know, your background with how you got into doing this, specifically because, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll just keep it real here. You know, a lot of black studios, it's hard to break past the the low level website slash church flyer slash quick logo kind of realm when it comes to studio work. And it's always good to talk to studio owners like yourself that are doing work at a much larger scale for much bigger uh bigger types of projects. I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned as a kid, you were doing these drawings about Nike. And now as an adult, you're doing work for Nike, you know, through your own studio. So I think for people that are listening, that should be something I hope that inspires them and, and that they get to see that as a black designer, that you're able to put out this kind of output of work and that it is something that is possible for us to do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure, and like I mentioned before, it's a it's a really great thing that Revision Path is doing, and keep it up. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jonathan Jackson, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jonathan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors: Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and Mailchimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? Everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up today for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings in general for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode a little earlier, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.